New book time. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> and we won't be here long. So enjoy it, which means we get to celebrate a new book again relatively quickly. But that also means we have to deal with some introductory information. There is stuff we need before we even get started because when you're dealing with historical books, even just starting the book is like air dropping into the middle of nowhere. You haven't been there, you don't know what's going on, and we've got to make sure we know who, what, when, where, why, and how, and all that good stuff. Now, our author will be mentioned in verse 1, but we won't spend a lot of time on him there for one simple reason. We have no earthly idea who he is. (laughs) We know he's got a name, but we don't know where he's from or what he does for a living, you know, whether he's tall or short. We, we don't know a thing about him. There is some extra biblical testimony. Take that always for what you will. A lot of times when dealing with authorship of Old Testament books and some of the history, we have to rely on slightly biased sources is the best way that I can put that. So... There is some extra biblical testimony that he is of the of the uh, of the tribe of Reuben, and he was from Beth Haram, which would be north and east of the Dead Sea. Now that doesn't really matter a whole lot. It's just one of those little historical nuggets that you can stick in your back pocket, and maybe you will win Bible Trivial Pursuit one day because you have it. More important for us would be time frame, and this is going to be really interesting. Because depending on who you read and who you ask, this book is plated somewhere between the 9th and 4th century B.C. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about history, a lot can happen between the 9th and the 4th century. So that is the early 800s to the late 300s. You know, it's just a little wide range in there. Now, historically, this book has been dated to the end of the 9th century, beginning of the 8th century. So if you were going to make me put like actual numbers to it, 835 to 796-ish is the traditional dating. Now, why is that the traditional dating? Because that's where it is in the Old Testament. And I'm not even kidding that that's as close as we get. It is placed in this position amongst the minor prophets, therefore, and because also it shares some of the language and writing style of the earlier minor prophets, specifically Hosea and Amos, it is traditionally dated to a similar time period as those two books. Now, you notice how comfortable I am giving you those definitive answers. (laughs) It's because they're not the most definitive of answers. Now, why do we talk about this if I can't give you anything more definitive than that? Because where you place this book in history helps you understand and determine it. So, The scholars that want to put it later in the history do so because they want to line up the language of the book with the actual historical events of the invasion of Jerusalem and Judah or the invasion of Jerusalem that failed. Was that me or... Okay. All right. (laughs) You got to love it. I'm sitting there going, well, I don't even know what that was. So I, I look, it's never comforting, though, when you get that and you look at the guy running the soundboard and he goes, I don't know. <laughs> so let's couple, let's make sure everything is literally screwed in tight here. All right. The only screws loose around here are in my head. So, all right. That's all I can do on this end. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. If it does, we'll deal with it. Worst case scenario, we'll go grab a handheld. We've done that before. So. 
Now, part of the reason they want to date it later so they can line up with either the successful invasion by the Babylonians in the 6th century or with the failed invasion by the Assyrians in the late 8th century, or they want to date it past all of this and have it look backward. Traditional rabbinical understanding would not have done that. Biblical history would not have done that because they would have taken the, prof the prophetic message for what it is, a message from God to a people about what will happen and a warning beforehand. So it gets stuck in this position in the canon, and understanding the book based on how it is used in the New Testament and where it is in the Old Testament actually makes more sense if we put it earlier as opposed to later. The other reason we do this is because we take the prophet at his word, and we do not, and this is, I'm coming around, you're in trouble. I'm coming around before we even read a Bible verse, you're doubly in trouble. It's going to be one of those days. The problem we get into with modern scholarship, and I need to almost put that in air quotes, is that it wants to use allegory when it shouldn't, and it wants to use modern critical reinterpretation when it shouldn't. So if you want a really bad example of what this looks like when carried to its most illogical conclusion, if you've ever read, oh, what was his name? Oh, shoot fire. Um, oh, the, the bald guy from the Nixon administration. Um, no, no, not that one, the one with the mustache. Um, G, G. Gordon Liddy. <laughs> I think that's who I'm thinking of. If not, it's the guy who looks like him, and that's a more frightening thing. Um, wrote a book, it was 70s, 80s, about the book of Revelation, and explaining how the locusts of Revelation are Apache attack helicopters, and then the sound of the wings is actually the sound. Yeah. <laughs> that's taking the prophecies of the Old Testament and the figurative language of the Old Testament and carrying it to absurd locations. A lot of modern scholarship wants to do that with the book of Joel as well, as opposed to allowing Joel's words to actually mean what they mean. Which, when in doubt in your Bible, always go to the KISS method. You guys know what the KISS method is, right? Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> when in doubt, the simplest explanation, uh, to put that more in a more philosophical understanding, Occam's razor should always mean effect. William of Occam was an English, well... English, we'll just use that as an, as an anachronism. An English philosopher, and his understanding was simple. The simplest explanation is always the best. If you like an example of that, like when you, when you came home and you're, there were cookies missing and you asked your kids, did you eat the cookies? And the kids go, no. What happened was um, there was an alien invasion, and they scared the cat, and the cat knocked over the cookies, and the cookies hit me in the face. That's why there's chocolate on my face. And then I cleaned up the mess and threw it away, but I didn't eat any cookies. Now, the more logical explanation is that the kid took the cookie jar down, opened the cookie jar, ate the cookie, and got chocolate on his face, and then put the cookies back, right? You know that's what happened because it's the simplest explanation as opposed to all the steps. It's like when someone looks at you and goes, were you at such and such a place at such and such a time? And you go, no. That's more likely true. When you look at them and go, well, what time again? Everything that's going to come forward from that point is going to be what? <laughs> Probably a lie or some twisting of the truth that they're going to try to convince themselves is actually true. Simplest explanation is always the best. So when we read Old Testament prophecy, we take them at their word and give them the benefit of the doubt that they are describing what they are actually describing and understand it accordingly. You'll see this when we get to the New Testament in chapter 2, which will be next week. Now, all of that to now put you in the time frame of late 9th, early 8th century BC, which would be the kingdom years in both Judah and Israel. So if you were in Judah, you would have Joash as king. If you've been in my Sunday school class, that is one of your okay kings. Why is Joash an okay king? 2 Kings 12. 
Joash did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So the king is good. The king is following the teachings of the temple and the high priest, but the people at large, for the most part, are not. Now, if you move from Judah to Israel, you are during the reigns of Jehu and Jehoahaz. And no, that doesn't get confusing at all when you try to realize that there's Jehoash and Joash, and that's basically the same name, and there's one in Judah and there's one in Israel, and it drives you insane. Now, Jehu and Jehoahaz are good, bad, and evil, depending on the day. (laughs) Jehu is the judgment on the house of Ahab. His sons, because he was faithful in executing the judgment of God, are going to rule on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation, Um, 2 Kings 13. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. He did not turn from them. This is the world that Joel enters into now. Just to put this in perspective, that basically means from the northern section of Israel all the way down through the kingdom of Israel, which would be south of Samaria, if you're looking in your Bible, and you have that map thing out, all the way through there, you have idolatry of the people and idolatry of the king. And you have had that for the better part of uh, 200 years. In Judah, you have idolatry throughout the land with pockets of exceptions, with the exception also of the king in the temple, but even that has not been consistent for the last years. It has been iffy, and it has been sometimes good and sometimes bad. So that means if you were doing this by a math equation, about 80-90% of Israel is a idolatry, corruption, and by the way, When we say idolatry of the Old Testament, do not sanitize it into the idolatry of today, which is, well, you know, he works 79 hours a week, and therefore he he neglects his family in the commands of God. That's not the idolatry we're talking about. We're literally talking about sacrificing your children to pagan gods. We're talking about brothels so that you'll have a good barley crop next year. We're talking about the... Yeah, we're we're talking about the most base of human instincts being indulged in and celebrated in opposition to faithful worship of God at the temple in the way that it is supposed to be. So all of that to then dive into the book of Joel. Ready? All right, here we go. (laughs) I know I put you guys all to sleep already. (laughs) The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? The answer should be simply no. That's the number one thing. But second of all, and this is probably most important, where does this come from? Joel just woke up one morning and be like, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to go yell at somebody. I think that'll be a fun afternoon. No, why has Joel decided to yell at people? The word of the Lord that came to Joel. This comes from God. Now, the people of Israel, have they remembered? No. Have they seen something like this before? Probably not. Does that mean God is in heaven going, hmm, I wonder what I can do that would be new that we haven't done before? No, there's nothing new under the sun for God. Isaiah 49. The Lord has forsaken me. Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but the Lord will not forget you. The Lord is not forsaken. The Lord has not forgotten. However, 
He does not let the world continue unabated. Remember that as we move forward. Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. We read in Exodus earlier, this is how the propagation of teaching and discipleship was always supposed to work in Israel. You can see this in things like Joshua chapter 4. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? These are the stones that they placed as a monument after God had stopped up the Jordan so they could walk across into the land. You take the stones from the middle of where the river was supposed to be, you make a monument. Why? Because one of these days, you're going to be traveling around, your kids going to be like, a big old pile of rocks over there. What, what, what's the deal with that? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. That was how the message was supposed to be propagated then. It's how the message is supposed to be propagated now. What do I always tell you your first ministry is? It's at home, and it starts with you. This is, again, though, why Israel got the festivals, why they got the times and the marks of the seasons, why they had the sacrifices offered on a daily basis. It is so they would be constantly reminded who they were and why they were that. Christian, this is why you have your time in prayer. This is why you should study Scripture. This is why the fellowship of the believers is so important. This is why we still, as churches, do what? We mark out times and seasons, and we celebrate Advent, and we mark out time for Thanksgiving, and we remember the history of what has gone on in the church, and we celebrate at Pentecost, and we remember things at Palm Sunday and at Easter so that we can be reminded of who God is and what he has done beyond just the regular markings of our lives day in and day out. We set aside special times to be reminded that he has accomplished redemption, that he has built a people, and that he is redeeming and building a people, and that's us. And we can rejoice and celebrate that he has not forsaken and not forgotten. That's part of what needs to be remembered if you're Israel, because this is going to go downhill quickly. <laughs> this, this is going to go from happy to sad real fast. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. In other words, what's been eaten? Yeah, pretty much everything. <laughs> Every last little bit. Why would be a better question. Deuteronomy 28. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it reason I go back to Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28, if you want to be depressed one day this week, go read Deuteronomy 28 at home. It might do you good depending on your mood. The reason I say that is Deuteronomy 28 is Moses laying out all the curses that will fall upon Israel if they forsake the covenant and worship false gods and engage in idolatry. It's a long, long chapter. And that warning from Moses covers every aspect of life. Just imagine in an agrarian culture, if you don't put it in the ground, odds are you don't eat after the harvest comes along. You will go out and scatter a multitude of seed and you will harvest basically nothing. Now, who makes the harvest grow? God does. Who sends the rains? God does, which means if your harvest is failing, who protects Israel from the locusts and the plagues and the armies and everything else that may come upon it? It's supposed to be God, which means if all of those things are coming upon you and the seeds are failing and the rains don't come and the crops and the ground is drying up, God is mad at you. 
might want to sit down and figure out what? Why? What's going on? Now look, you may evaluate your life and come up with absolutely positively nothing. But knowing what we've known historically thus far about Israel, if they had examined their lives, do you think they'd have come up with something? <laughs> Even if you looked in your house and been like, we're doing okay, we're following, we're part of that remnant of people that Elijah, you know, is warned about. or is, is, We're part of the remnant. We would look around at our neighbors and say what? They're not. It's like, huh. When 90% of the people have gone astray and have fallen after idols and false religion and have forsaken God, why are we shocked when judgment comes upon the land? Why are we shocked when crops fail? and when sin is multiplied, and when bad things are continually happening. Because again, it's almost like, because what's the lie? Well, why are these bad things happening to these wonderful people? They're not wonderful people. And that's part of the reminder here. So we have an unhappy memory that we are supposed to be telling to our sons, and their sons, and their sons after them. Continue on. Awake, drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. If you weren't sure if it was judgment before, you are now. Always remember, judgment could be famine, it could be plague, it could be in foreign invasion, anything that would get the people to wake up. Anything that would get them to wake up and look around and realize that God has looked down and said, hey, wake up and pay attention. Again, go back to Deuteronomy 28. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and on your descendants forever. Now, we got to pause right here because if you read this the way the Pharisees would have read this, what would be the cure? What do we need to do? The judgments have come upon us because we have been a disobedient people. What must we change? We got to change how we live. We got to clean up, straighten up, and fly right. The law was given to a redeemed people. The law was given to a people that God had rescued by his power, by his might, from an enemy they could not conquer, and he had pulled them out, provided for them, protected them, and said, because I have rescued you, this, as my people, is how you shall live. That has to start where for the people of God? Outside of us? has to start at the heart. This is why the prophetic message has consistently been what it has been. A call to a return to the Lord, not in action, but in heart and mind. That's why Isaiah goes through 39, 40 chapters of judgment, and then all these chapters of the redemption that God will bring. That's why Jeremiah demonstrates over and over again that it is a change that has to be wrought from God, a new covenant that God will inaugurate. Because remember the history of your Old Testament. Are we just, so 
fast forward, or I'm sorry, rewind yourself, pick you up, pluck you in 822 BC Judah. What you waiting for? See, this is what we forget when we forget the history of the Old Testament. You're waiting for the seed of the woman. The prophet like Moses, the king from the line of David who will rule forever, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the one to whom the kingdom is due. You're waiting for that Shiloh to come. You're looking at Joash and going, yeah, he's righteous. He's following the priest. But look at the people that he rules and governs. What is he allowing to, be, uh, to occupy his kingdom? Because this is the lie that we tell ourselves. The lie is that we look at it in the world and we say, oh, this is a good place. I've done what I'm supposed to do. No, not in that world. The king, the representative of God, is supposed to look at the sin and paganism of his people and do what to it? Destroy it by any means necessary. Now, Christian, do you rule a kingdom? <laughs> a kingdom of how many? One. Exactly. This is where your idea goes from Old Testament to New Testament. What's my joke about? What's my joke? When you find sin in your life, what do you do? Kill it with fire! Nah! Go to war with your sin. Do not allow it a foothold. Do not allow it to stand. And enjoy the battle day in and day out because it is a sign from God of your salvation and sanctification. You woke up today, looked at your sin and went, that doesn't belong here. Congratulations. You know what the pagan woke up and saw? Eh, Tuesday. It just is what it is. Tis life. You rejoice. You want to be holier than you are. I understand that. You live on this side of the veil. You live on this side of eternity. Therefore, you get the war and the battle day in and day out. You get to live in the midst of this. Because what is God going to do to sin? This is why your world looks the way that it looks. And by the way, we're going to get to that more in a second. So let's continue on. Verse 8. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. That's, if you don't really know the history, that's an that's a, that's a interesting picture there. In other words, wail like the unmarried young woman whose husband has now been killed. That's a mourning that we hope nobody ever has to experience. But why in the world would you use that as a picture? Why would you use that picture? Isaiah 54. Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Fast forward to Revelation 19. And by the way, you'll see similar language for uh, you'll see similar language in Ezekiel. Read Hosea, you will see that language throughout a description of Israel as a bride to the husband who is God. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The revelation picture is what for the people of God? Like a bride prepared for the husband who is God. Why use this imagery? Well, it's simple. Find me a time in history 
before now. <laughs> Which, hang on, can we just kind of have a wah 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 moment for that? Because, yeah, exactly. Find me a time in history where marriage was something other than an exclusive relationship. I mean, in mass, there's always been outliers and weirdos and things like that. But I mean, isn't that the whole point of getting married? The whole point of getting married isn't to be like, I will love, honor, and cherish. Ooh, they're cute. <laughs> See, you laugh because you immediately know what about that picture. Yeah, that's just not how that's supposed to go. That's not how this is supposed to work. Well, again, Christian, the picture is used for the people of God and God because God redeems his people. And yet his people spend their entire life going, ooh, ooh. We're like a kid at Toys R Us. Hey, yeah. I've done that one time. I brought Cameron's little brother when he was two years old to Toys R Us. That was either the coolest thing I've ever done or the biggest mistake I've ever made because I watched him almost rip himself in half because <laughs> he saw something and the words, oh, cool, were uttered about 27,000 times in an hour. And he saw something and went running after it. And as he ran by the aisle, his brain saw something else. But it's, part of him tried to go that way and part of him tried to go that way at the same time and he just fell right there. <laughs> and we laughed and picked him up and then he went down the aisles and explained to him how the store worked. We did the whole thing. But anyway... That's us in the world. We are forever looking at every shiny object, every new thing we could possibly discover and play with, except for the righteousness that God provides. Except for that. You know, who, who wants that? <laughs> because we're broken. Because we're busted. And even in Christ, which is what I tell you, when you find your sin, kill it. Go to war because it is a recognition of who you are and to whom you belong. This is the picture that is given to Israel because this is the picture that is given to God's people. How they are supposed to view themselves in the world and how they are supposed to view themselves in light of the world. So, wail like this, why? The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. Regardless of how you want to see the imagery of the preceding eight verses, that should be terrifying to Israel. That should be utterly terrifying. Um, if you go back to Exodus 29, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil. You can do those measurements at home. One-fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. This description is of the daily offering of morning and evening that the priests are supposed to give in the presence of God. This is an offering of thanksgiving for the people because they are the people of God. God is with them, physically present at their tabernacle at this point in history, at the temple. It is an offering to be reminded that God's presence is there, that he rules over his people in an actual, physical, tangible way. Which means, all that to tell you this, if you remove that sacrifice, you are not just saying, we don't feel like it today. What you are saying is, we have decided that we do not wish to go before the Lord in thanks and worship and praise. That's probably not a good place to be. That would be bad enough. The other possibility here is, you went in with the sacrifice and God wasn't there. That would be worse. That would be much, much worse. 
Now, why might God not be there? He doesn't forsake or forget his people. Well, if you continually bring him false sacrifice, if you continually bring him a sacrifice so that, you know, the deity will jump at your command so that, oh, we bring these sacrifices so that the crops would be blessed, so that the rains will come, so that our lands will be protected. Now, look, are those all part of what God is doing for his people Israel? Yes. Is that why Israel worships? No. No, it should not. Those are ancillary. Those are secondary things. Why do we worship? Because this is who God is. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the King of creation, God of the universe, and he has deigned to come down. We worship and we honor and we praise. And beyond just that, he has redeemed us. And he has made us to be a people and a kingdom and has promised us a place in his kingdom for eternity. And we go, eh, <laughs> you know, we got other things. I was busy that day. This is a problem of heart and mind, which again is why the language of the prophets. This is what, this is what the Pharisees would get twisted. This is what modern fundamentalism gets twisted. And this is what a lot of non-believing scholarship gets twisted. Is they look at the law and they look at the sacrifices and the commandments. And then they look at the call of the prophets and they go, this is just two different religions. This is just two different things because you've got the obedience and the checklist religion of the law. Do this on Tuesday, do this on Wednesday, do this in the morning, do this at lunchtime, do this in the afternoons. And then you've got all this language in Isaiah about returning to the Lord and understanding who he is and what he has done and offering prayers and the change of heart of Jeremiah and Ezekiel as the people are brought back to life as though they were dead. And you have all this language from the prophets that sounds, emotional is not the right word, but it is more heart and more internal than it is external obedience. And people look at it and say, well, that's just two different things. No! One flows from the other. You care about that list of things that were given in Leviticus because you understand that God has redeemed you and changed you and transformed you and brought you out of a house of bondage in Egypt and brought you into a free land that he has secured. And if you keep that checklist while separating the heart and the mind from it, well, the checklist is now useless. It provides nothing. This is the warning you get constantly from dead religion in the, in the modern church. You don't just show up to say you went to church that day. You don't just show up, okay, what did we sing today? That's the checklist. That's removing the heart and the mind, and I did the stuff, and I went through the motions. Now look, are there going to be days you don't feel like it? Yes, in everything in life. Always remember for that, too, Christ has died. But... If that is the life, if that is where you live day in and day out, the problem is not, well, they, it's, the music isn't the music that I like. The preaching isn't the preaching that I like. The lighting isn't the lighting that I like. It's not, that's not the problem. The problem is here. This needs to be changed before God and an understanding of who you are and what's going on. Now, if the preaching's bad, you're allowed to not like it. That's, that's a different discussion. But <laughs> yeah. And if the music's bad, you're allowed to not like that too, right? However, you are not allowed to allow that to influence how you view God and whether or not you worship and praise each and every day. Okay, there we go. Now, that's where Israel is. It's not that the checklist has been lost. It's that the checklist has been kept in spite of them as a pagan, idolatrous people. So what will that look like moving forward? Verse 10. The field is ruined. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. 
Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up, the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. If you live in an agrarian society like they do, there's not a whole lot left, is there? <laughs> I mean, that's the stuff you plant seasonally. I mean, trees aren't supposed to fail if it's a bad year. They're supposed to set down roots and be protected, but they died. I mean, figs and apples, you plant those and you don't get a crop for years. Three, four years as they establish roots and produce and you care for them. And the reason that's important is because then they do produce, but if there's a bad year or a couple of dry years in a row, they're hardy enough and established that they can withstand it. They can survive. They're gone. The ground is cursed. The trees are cursed. Everything has been cursed because what level of sin will God deal with? All of it. And if Israel is incapable of understanding who God is and what he has done, this is what life looks like. Now, it moves even beyond that because if you finish up this verse, um, indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. <laughs> Why? Because they've looked around at everything around them, and what is it now? It's nothing. It's gone. What's their life supposed to look like? Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song in his, and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with, tie, with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he will beatify the afflicted ones with salvation. Did that psalm say he will take those afflicted ones and make sure their lives are awesome and great? No. He will give them salvation. In other words, your life should be lived with an eye towards what is beyond here. Now, by the way, if you ever want to know why your world is starting to look like what it looks like today, the rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Regardless of where the financing has come from, the reason why if you go back and you look at things like um, Middle Ages churches, they're pretty. <laughs> they're big and they're grand and they're beautiful. Architectural design was pretty. Why? It was an offering unto God. It was a reminder that it is God who has redeemed people. It is God who has built a kingdom. Um, bring communism into it for just a second. I know. Because at its core, regardless of what anyone will ever try to tell you, take it from someone with a bad history degree, <laughs> communism at its core is a godless system. It has to be because it has to assert itself into every avenue of life. You ever looked at uh, Soviet design? Like You ever looked at Soviet buildings from the middle of the 20th century? It's like, we're going to take this block, we're going to paint it brown, and we're going to put it right here. That's why if you ever want to have a good laugh, go look at pictures of, um, of Moscow. Because you will see Soviet-era architecture next to... Um, enlightenment in Middle Ages architecture. And you will see these beautiful cathedrals and ornate buildings, and there's like a block. <laughs> and you're like, you can literally tell the difference. Why? Because they don't care. There's nothing higher. There's nothing better. Look, look at our modern world. Take communism out of it. Look at our modern world. Build a church today. What's it going to start with? 99 times out of 100. It's going to look like a warehouse. We're going to put some steel girders. We're going to make it 
since we want it to look like a church, it won't be a block. So we'll have a little pitch in the roof. And then we're going to cover it with aluminum siding. Why? Because it's sturdy and it's cheap. Yeah, well, it did, but we laugh, but it's sturdy and it's cheap. And at the end of the day, what is our primary goal? Pragmatism. Now, look, build what you have. Do with, do with your money as you see fit. But there's something telling in humanity that the more we become a secular society, the more we abandon higher concepts of beauty and artistic design in favor of utilitarian pragmatism. Now, take that out of architecture. What was the last classic literature you've heard of? <laughs> and how much classic literature do we have to go back hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years? Why? Because sin corrupts and destroys everything, and the judgment of God on the hearts and minds of his people dries up even the rejoicing of the sons of men. That's why if you look at, go to an art gallery. Where's all the good art come from? Did it come from the 19th century? Come from the 20th century? No, it comes out of the Renaissance, one of the last pre-modern times where we still had this understanding of service unto God. Now modern art is, ooh, we have a banana duct taped to the wall. And I'm not even kidding. That is in a museum. It is, you, you laugh, it is a yellow banana duct taped to the wall. I'm sure it's making a statement about something, but what that something is, I have no earthly idea. And I will allow people that have art degrees to explain it to me because I, I, don't, I think you have to be educated to a certain level of insanity in order to make sense of that. <laughs> and I have not achieved that level of insanity. Music. When you hear someone talk about celebrated classics 100 years from now, what are we going to be saying? Are we going to be singing Elvis songs? <laughs> You're going, please, Lord, no. <laughs> There's a guy. Oh, I can't remember his name. He, is, um, he had a whole YouTube channel for a while where he would just take a single bass line and then sing any song you gave him from like 1960 to today to the same bass line. Because at the end of the day, we just have the same four chords played at different pacings and different... It's like, and you can literally just speed it up, slow it down, and it's the same song. Now, that's been true for, uh, throughout history, but it hasn't been true of what we consider to be great music. What do we produce that is great anymore? Because the rejoicing of men has dried up. As Romans 1 points out, we are a culture that is under judgment because we are a culture that in large... Not everyone within it, but in large, has become secular and turned away from God. And as that happens, the anchor that held it to something that is good and right and beautiful is severed. And you can only drift for so long before you lose sight of the shore and what it meant to you in society. Now, I point that out now because Joel has now given you the bad news. What comes next? Hopefully. There'd like to be some good news. Now, how, pray tell, shall we find it? Verse 13. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. That would be an appropriate response for the priests at the temple. A recognition that God is not there. A recognition that something has gone terribly wrong. And even if I do not know what it is, you know what I can always do. I can always cry out to God. This would be the appropriate response for a Bible verse that I'm sure many of you know. Second Chronicles 7. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my peoples, and my people who are called by my name 
humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, real quick, just to be on the safe side. Christian, where's your land? <laughs> just, just before you get this one on a coffee mug, because this is one of those coffee mug verses, so I'm going to take two minutes and just take the little exit ramp here and make everybody feel bad. <laughs> where's your land? Yeah, you don't live in a Christian nation. That verse is not a one-to-one application to you. When you see the sins of those people over there, you can repent until the cows come home. You can't repent for them. This is a call for who to repent? Them! This is the call of the gospel in every shape, form, and fashion. In every society, no matter where it is. You have looked upon the world. You have seen sin and corruption. What should you do? Repent. You should examine your life, find your sin, root it out, kill it with fire, and know that for that too Christ has died, and call out to God to make things better. Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. That's why this is the right understanding, is because Israel is looking at their world and going, judgment has come, this land is broken, we need God to heal it. Now Christian, what land are you longing for? Because if you are longing for this country to be put back together, you are longing for the wrong thing. Now look, would I like this country to be put back together in a better manner? Yes! Yes, I would. How, pray tell, should we go about doing such a thing? See, if I want my country to be better, what do I need within my country? Yeah, but I mean, and I need God to be with which people? Those people. I need more, better people in my country. Which means I need them to be changed. Which means I need to be proclaiming the gospel which means I need to make sure I'm starting with me and working where I have influence and making disciples and allowing the gospel message to work as it has always worked from the bottom up to change a society every single time. The world gets better as people get better. People only get better as people live in Christ. Always remember that. Don't take these as one-to-ones. However, good response still, and it continues. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. By the way, that's the right reason. Notice the reason why you should be mourning. We're not mourning because judgment has come. We're not mourning because the crops have failed. We've mourned because God's forsaken us. That's the biggest problem. We talked about this when we talked on Wednesdays when we went through the book of Revelation. And we reminded, we reminded ourselves, when you read those letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three of Revelation, you should be reminded that the judgment of God is being poured out on the world. Christians in those chapters are in the world, which means as the armies are marching back and forth and they're being killed in battle, and as plagues are being spread and people are dying by disease and famine has gone and people are starving to death, that some of those Christians are being killed in battle and some of those Christians are getting sick and some of those Christians are starving. Are they being judged? No. No, they are not because God has not left them and God has not abandoned them and that no matter what may befall them in this world, In God's kingdom, they are secure. And in his presence, they will rejoice and they will be righteous, which means they can live with joy in spite of the things around them. In spite of the crummy architecture and the bad music that you don't like, you can have joy. 
because you can see what is going on in this world rightly and see it as a society that has forgotten God. But God has not forgotten me. And God has not forsaken me. And I can rejoice and I can persevere and I can proclaim his mercy and his goodness and know that as I do this, his Holy Spirit will strengthen me and carry me forward and he will create in people clean new hearts and the gospel will spread and the kingdom will grow because that is what he has promised and that is what he is still doing. If he wasn't doing that, well, then pack up the bus and let's go home. But we're not done yet. And I tell you all the time, you're not done. Why? Because you're breathing. You're still drawing breath, so you still have work to do. Well, this place is still spinning, which means God's not done with it yet. So what, what now? Live your life. Keep the faith. Trust in him. Live out your faith day by day and proclaim his mercies and goodness each and every day. Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Once again, that's what it should look like if what was true of the people. If they were fearful, if they believed, if they recognized this as the judgment that they should. You see this in things like Ezra. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And you know what he did next? He read it. What was the result? Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught all the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Because when they looked at the world around them, and they looked at themselves and how they lived in the world, and they heard the law, they said what? That ain't us. <laughs> and that means what for us? Nothing good. And by the way, keep in mind, those are the people that had returned from exile. Those are the best of the best. Those are the people that had been kicked out and gone, it is time to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city of God with his people. And they were the ones going, uh-oh, I'm not good enough. Which, spoiler alert, neither are you. Neither am I. Neither is anybody else. That's why he comes. <laughs> if you could have been good enough, the cross would have been unnecessary. If you could have accomplished, Jesus' mission would have been useless. But he came. And he accomplished. Therefore, I know you're a failure, and I know you can't, and I know you need help, which is why I encourage you constantly, read your Bible. Spend time in prayer, because you need that empowering. You need the strength of God. You need to recognize that it is not your work, but it is his work that accomplishes all these things. So it continues, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. I thought we were encouraging people. <laughs> I thought this was the good news portion of the program. Does that sound like good news, Christian? Careful how you answer. 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's, that's the second coming of God. What does the second coming of, look, the second coming of God look like for the non-believers? Yeah, that's the Revelation 19. That's the sword and the blood and the sash and the death and the destruction. Comfort one another with these words. Yes, Christian, this, this is good news. Do you like sin? What do you want to see happen to it? <laughs> 
what's God going to deal with? Romans 8, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit then himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is why I tell you, you have joy in spite of the world around you. Because sin will be dealt with. And sin will be judged. And God will be building his kingdom and judging those who are not a part of his kingdom. And you will be stuck living in a world like that until Jesus comes back or you die. He hasn't forgotten you. As you see the difficulties of the world, as you see the trials and the tribulations, you are not being judged. Rejoice. You are being reminded of the brokenness of this world and the hope of the kingdom that is to come, of the hope that righteousness will bring about the death of sin and the destruction of all that is unholy. And that is good news for you because you do not face that because Christ has already faced it on your behalf. And it is also good news because we have a hope for those that are facing that judgment because we have a means by which they can be saved. We actually have a gospel that produces something and changes the hearts and minds of men. Now, continue on. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Again, I thought we were in the good news portion of the program. It's a reminder, Christian. Fast forward your historical setting. Even though the Jews are trying to kill me, and even though the Romans have put me in jail, and even though the mobs have beaten me, Paul can rejoice. Even though the architecture is miserable, and even though we're led by nincompoops, it seems like, and even though the tax structure is trying to make me broke, and even though we're going to be in World War III soon, he has not forgotten me. The situation of the world hasn't changed, Christian. The situation of the world hasn't changed. Now, just to make sure we cover this, why hasn't the situation of the world changed? Because en masse have people changed. <laughs> Tried to turn that corner a little too short. There's a door that's open, but it's not open all the way. And turned into the hallway. That was that thud. <laughs> Sorry. There was an adult there telling him he's okay. So, <laughs> just bam. <sighs> Even when you walk head first into the door, he has not forgotten you. <laughs> Sorry. This is, again, I'm always telling you about why perspective matters. And this is why that is so important. Because people apart from Christ haven't changed. Sin has not changed. Ecclesiastes is still in effect because there is nothing new under the sun. Therefore, do not live for this place. That's why, I, I, believe it or not, I don't plan the trivia question. It just pops up whichever one's the next one in line. Don't live for the things of this world. Don't live for the accumulation of this world and for the wealth that it provides. Use whatever this world has provided you for what? The building up of his kingdom, for the spreading of the gospel message, for the joy of who God is and what he has done. As we covered in Colossians 3 a few weeks ago, set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Lift your eyes up. And then where it finishes up. To you, O Lord, I cry. That's a good place to start because who else can do anything? Nobody. 
Psalm 121, Psalm 46 both make the same point. I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains split into the, I'm sorry, slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains shake at its swelling pride. Never forget that part. See, we like the first part of Psalm 46 and the last part. See, we like the, God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble. Be still and know that I am God. See, we like those. We forget the middle part, even though it's like somebody picked it up and shook it like a magic eight ball to see what would happen next. Even though the mountains are falling into the sea. I mean, you never want to go to the beach and be like, oh, look at those pretty white caps. Let's go sailing. That's not how water works. In the midst of that, be still and know that I am God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's not, yay, though I tiptoe through the tulips and skip along in the bright sunshines, I will feel no fear, fear no evil. Of course you won't. There isn't any. That's not your world. That's not what it looks like. You walk in the midst of a world that has gone, God, and then continues on with their lives however they feel like it. Which again, what's the good news? You woke up, looked at your sin, and went, ooh, that's not good. The pagan woke up, looked at his sin, and went, eh. Tuesday, who cares? So you can rejoice, Christian, because he hasn't forgotten you, he hasn't forsaken you, and he is bringing you to a good kingdom. So to you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And all of that is a mercy from God. Every last bit of that is a mercy from God. I've used this bad example before. If your kid is making a straight line sprint for the interstate at rush hour, well, not rush hour because nobody's moving at rush hour, (laughs) but you get the point. Do you stand at the door and go, wait, stop, come back? Might depend on how many kids you have and how they've been that week, but (laughs) what would you do? You go tackle them. If I got to spear you to the ground, but they might get hurt and scrape their witch on knees. Well, better the ground than a Buick at 84 miles an hour. I mean, it's always a Buick. Have you seen people in Buicks drive? Have you seen people in Buicks drive? People in Buicks don't care. They still think they're made like they were in 1997. It's steel. My grandfather had one of those. I'm I'm convinced to this day that he thought his age was the speed limit. He had a Buick Century from 1994. It was a steel frame, four doors, about as wide as this room. <laughs> and he'd just cruise, and you could feel the thing do this as you rode in at about 80 miles an hour down the highway. Just kind of rolled along. Yes. So yes, when I say Buicks, I'm immediately back in the passenger seat of my grandfather's car going, I don't want to die. <laughs> you would run the risk of hurting that child. To do what? To save them. Because there's something more important. Christian, this is how you have to look at the world around you. Is there difficulty? Is there plague and famine and pestilence? Yes! Jesus summoned the crowds with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you have an idol... 
and it is keeping you from God, what is the most loving, caring thing God can do for you? Destroy it. He, can just, he should destroy it. Absolutely. Now look at the world around you and realize that well, we, we get this part. We look around and go, man, this world is covered in sin and corruption and degradation and paganism and secularism of every shape, form, and fashion. And then we're shocked that it doesn't work well. We're shocked that there's difficulty and that there's corruption and there's problems. Why are we shocked that God has looked at sin and gone, nope, nope, not going to let you keep that. Not going to let you worship that. Not going to let you follow that. When you see these things, and by the way, regardless of what the cause is, when you see earthquakes someplace, go, yeah, God shook the place today. That should be a reminder that this world is not my home. When you see trains derail, you should be able to look at that and go, yes, morons run this place. Thank God it is not my home. You should look at the response of humanity. You should look at the evils of humanity and go, yes, yes, thank you. Go to the end of the book and say, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come, because this cannot be allowed to stand. And in the meantime, Philippians 4. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not a verse that should be hung up in a gym somewhere. And yes, I have seen that happen on more than one occasion. That's a verse that should be reminded of you. When my country is run by good people who love the Lord and are stewarding it well, I can get along. When my country is run by pagans who hate this place and want to see me destroyed, I can get along well. Because my hope is not in them. It is in him. And my hope is not in the provisions of this place, but in the provisions of the Spirit as I am ushered into an eternal kingdom that he has built. That is my hope. That is my security. And that is how I live each and every day. Anything else? The kill it with fire treatment. Knowing that his mercy is good, his love endures, and he will usher us to a good end. Let's pray.